Welcome to the Digital Workplace Deep Dive. I'm your host, Weston Morris. In a previous episode, you had the privilege of listening to Neil Keating, the Chief Experience Officer and co-founder of Bright Horse, a company that's dedicated to driving great experience and helping companies around the world with experience management programs. They're helping us as well, and we're enjoying the relationship. In this episode here, we're going to move beyond anti-patterns, which is what we talked about in the last episode, anti-patterns relating to experience management, to just some plain bad practices. Neil, welcome to the episode. Thank you, Weston. Thank you for inviting me back. Well, let's get started. You know, last time we talked about some anti-patterns, things that people think may be a good idea, but actually turned out hurting them as they roll out experience management. I mean, let's get down to the nitty gritty here of some actual, you know, traps and bad practices. What's an example of a bad practice in traditional experience management that actually hurts experience for end users? Even before, Weston, you start on an experience project, one of the bad practices we see quite a bit is organizations thinking they're ready for doing experience management, but haven't even got ITSM under control. So if you're still thinking, I haven't got incident management, problem management, change management, release management in place and at a controllable state, i.e. repeatable, everyone knows what they're doing, then I can tell you now, experience is probably the least of your problems because everybody will be having a bad experience because you're not solving incidents properly, you're not doing problem management properly. So we do tend to find that people come out from the start really racing at experience management because they're really interested in the topic, the art and science behind experience management, how we can improve our employees or our customers' experience of IT services. And that's a brilliant, brilliant thing that they're doing. However, You've got to get the basic building blocks in place, first of all. You must make sure you are at level three control against the capability maturity model. If you don't do that, you're building your foundations on sand. And that's the first thing I would say. Beyond that, what we tend to find in sort of service levels and KPIs is that people have put in service level agreements or KPIs, moreover, for the probably the right reasons but have caused behavioral issues that they hadn't expected to happen, which is one of the reasons why they call us in in the first place, thinking about, well, why has this happened and how can we improve services? I always think the acronym KPI must stand for kills proactivity indefinitely because one of the things that we did with a project, we learned uh, it was a really interesting one. Uh, They had, for the right reasons, put in place a KPI for their service desk that said a service desk agent mustn't take a call longer than 15 minutes, I think it was. And the reason why they did that was because there's lots of calls and lots of incidents arising, and they wanted to make sure that they were responding to the tickets. Uh, So they said, if you can't resolve a ticket within 15 minutes, what you must do is you must pass that ticket on to another level of support. The problem happened that it was fine for lots of the countries. They were in a multinational organization, but for particular countries, that became a real issue because... The customers, the end users, the people who are logging the tickets, really what they want is their ticket resolved at at first touch. The agents taking the tickets could sometimes sit there and think, well, I can resolve your call, Weston, but it's probably going to take me 20 to 25 minutes. And they would want to solve the call. And the customer would want the call solved. They'd rather do that than wait for someone to call them back another time and, and it would take longer to fix. But the agents weren't allowed to do that. And if they did do it, That would probably make the customer happy, but then they would be penalized and told by their management that you're spending too long on a call. You must reduce the time you spend on a call. It's costing too much. If you can't fix it in 15 minutes, 
pass it on. That's the rules. So it was completely an anti-experience KPI. It killed this, this sort of proactivity level. I can fix it, but I'm not able to because I don't have the time. And when we start looking at their SLAs and KPIs they've got in place already, we realize that it's things like that that put in place for the right reasons, but just drive the wrong behavior. When I was running service desks, I'd always put in place what I would call an intelligent service desk. And what I meant by that was the people on the that you called, they would be able to resolve a high percentage of your tickets when you ring because they were technically competent. They'd been through the training. They understood the technologies that we had in place at that point in time. What I learned from that, and we see this a lot now in other organizations, that will tend to have a longer response time. Because those people are on the phone trying to resolve tickets, you probably have to wait a bit longer to get your call answered. So service desks often have to balance out, what do we want? Do we want a quick response time, i.e. I'll pick up the phone in three rings, or would you rather wait a bit longer, maybe five minutes, a few minutes on the phone, and then have someone to resolve your ticket? Which direction do you want to go in? It's, it's almost a scale, and where do you want to be on that scale? Wow. You really have to think about how you measure and the bigger picture as to what the impact is of that measurement, not just the immediate reason for measuring it. That's very important. Let's talk about tooling. I mean, most organizations realize that, you know, in addition to their standard ITSM tool set, in order to have great experience management, there's additional data that has to be collected. That means different tooling. But what are some bad practices or mistakes you see with tool selection or what they expect from the tools? There's some very good tools out there that do digital experience. There's tools out there that do really good sentiment surveys. I've actually had customers buy a tool without realizing that there's a lot more work to put in place than just buying the tool. They think the tool is going to be the panacea. They think that's going to answer all their problems. We're just about to implement this tool, so don't worry about experience. This tool is going to solve it. And the tool doesn't. No tool can. What the tools can do is provide you data and provide you information and point you in the right direction and tell you where maybe experience is, is a problem. It can't resolve the experience for you. You still have to configure it. You still have to work out what you're going to do with that. And you have to ask those two fundamental questions that I know you and I have talked about before, Weston, the, the so what and the what now. What's the tool telling you? And if so, what are we going to do about that? How do we resolve these issues? So tools cannot be the complete answer. You have to have process changes. You have to have cultural changes around that to make sure that you're getting the right data from the tool and you're responding to the right patterns within the tool. The other thing I think with tools we see quite a lot, sometimes customers will tell me, we know what the issue we're trying to resolve is. It might be an issue with uh, proactivity with an ITM, or it might be an issue understanding sentiment from their employees. It might be an issue thinking about digital experience. So they'll buy the tool to fix that one issue. Six months, eight months, nine months, 12 months later, they think they fixed that issue. And then that tool becomes shelfware very, very quickly. And when I go back to an organization, in fact, I do value assessments on tools. And we go into organizations and we'd say, well, let's talk about the experience tools that you've got in place. And let's think about the value you get from there. Where could you get more value from your investment? And what we tend to find is that they've only used that tool for the tiny amount of capability that tools, that actual tools got the capabilities to do. They haven't used it to its full potential. So they made it, fixed the problem, forgotten about it, and it's become shelfware. And again, I will say most of the tooling out there is, is very good at measuring digital experience. But you need to change your behaviors and you need to look at the tools regularly because experience happens regularly. People's expectations change regularly. 
issues happen regularly. You can't just fix it at one-off. Experience isn't something you can fix as a one-off and say, well, we've done that, we're now moving on. You need to change the way that the IT team behave, the way they report IT, the way they manage IT, based upon the information they're getting back. And if they don't do that, then the saying that is a fool with a tool is still a fool. So you've really got to think through your tool strategy. What's the right tool for you? What's that tool going to fix for us? How do I need to behave to make sure I've got the right data and and we're responding to the issues that the tool is telling us and making sure that they know that the tool isn't going to answer all of their problems? So you've mentioned three of the things that are necessary for a good XLA. You've mentioned the KPIs, having the right KPIs and the right measures, having some form of digital experience collected automatically. And then you mentioned the survey as well. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I think there's a real science or maybe even an art and a science to creating good surveys. And it is an important part of understanding how people feel. (laughs) So what are you seeing that are some bad practices that that we really need to avoid with the survey side of things? First of all, we see that Organizations, when we talk to them about those three kind of the structures of, of what XLA is, you know, digital experience, the, the relevant KPIs and, and SLAs, and then uh, sentiment data, they go, okay, we've got some SLAs, we need to go straight to a survey. And so what they do is they go straight out and they either buy a tool or repurpose an existing tool and start gathering some form of sentiment data from the organization and think they've solved the problem by just surveying a group of people and, tr- and asking them how they feel about things. But you see, if the survey isn't scientifically backed, isn't the right statistically backed survey, then you're going to get the wrong sample. You're going to get bias in that sample. You're not going to choose the right people to survey. You haven't got a random sample of the whole organization. You'll tend to find that in organizations, certain departments will respond to a survey. Others won't respond to a survey. And it's probably traditional across most organizations. You might find, for example, people in HR are more willing to respond. Maybe people in operations are less willing to respond. So if you just go out and survey the organization without the correct statistical science backing that survey, you're going to find the wrong data. You're going to find the wrong patterns in the wrong data. So therefore, you're going to jump to the wrong conclusions. You're going to base judgment and decisions on something that isn't scientifically or statistically valid. And therefore, you're going to get to the wrong decisions faster. So that's the first thing. Don't go straight to the survey. Make sure you've understood the science behind the survey, the statistics behind the survey. The second thing we tend to find, Weston, is that people ask difficult questions. So we say to people, you don't want a survey that has hundreds and hundreds of questions because people get survey tired and they don't really want to answer those surveys. And they find that they'll answer the first few very diligently. And if it keeps going on and on and on, they will stop answering it truthfully and just press any button to try and get rid of the survey or pull out the survey entirely. So we say to people, really what you need to do is is ask less than, let's say, 10 questions. So what they then do is they then double mean questions. So they will say something along the lines of, okay, I need to ask questions about projects and I need to ask questions about the service desk. I think I can get that in one question. And the question might be, how do you feel about the service desk and the project department? How do you feel about your laptop and your mobile phone? The problem with that is that users responding to those surveys don't know which question I'm answering. Am I answering the question about the service desk or am I answering a question about the project team? Do you want me to tell you about the mobile phone? Do you want me to tell you about your laptop? So you've got to think through the questioning very careful. Ask a single-based question that doesn't confuse people, that enables them to say, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I can respond to that because I've experienced that service myself. So they might say, okay, I can't ask, how do you feel about the service desk and projects? 
What I'll do is I'll ask a question and say something like, how do you feel about IT in general? And whereas that's quite logical, that is such a wide-ranging question that it's very difficult to decipher anything from that because people go, well, I kind of like some of it. I don't like other bits. And if I'm scoring it, I'll, I'll give you a score out of five. And if you get a middle ground score or something, if it's out of 10, you get five. I just don't know what you do with that data. It's kind of, mm, it's okay. Really what you want to understand is ask very specific questions so you get very specific answers about your questions that you can actually action as long as you've got the statistical science behind that. So that's the things I would really urge people to do with surveys. The last one, if I may, is that I often find people, when we talk about sentiment surveys, we do find that you go into organizations, we ask them, how do you do sentiment surveys? And either they, A, they say, we don't do it. And that's why you're here. We'd like your help. Or B, they would say, oh, we do do it. We do it once a year. And we survey the whole organization and we ask them how they feel about working for this company. The problem that brings is that if I've got a problem in January and you haven't surveyed me until October, it's probably January by the time you deciphered that, understood I've got a problem. And by then it's too late. I would would have left or I'd have worked around you. I'd have bought an app on on my credit card, whatever it might have been I needed to do. I would have done it myself because I can't wait that long. So you need to survey your organization regularly. Once a year is too long. So we recommend breaking that survey down into the right sample sizes so you can start getting statistically valid data on a regular basis so you can action that much quicker than you would if it was just an annual survey. I'd say they're the top three things I would recommend people do, Weston. And a lot of that is what's going to help you get to the so what question. You mentioned there's two questions we need to ask, so what and what now. And so if we're implementing the survey and the questioning properly, we'll probably have a much better view of you know, what's going on. And then we can say, well, so what? What does this mean? Let's talk about this last area, this last uh, problem area in implementing experience management that I think both you and I have seen. It's simply stopping with that so what question, being really good at reporting. Maybe, you know, I've got a digital experience score, a dashboard, I've got the data coming out. I might be able to say who's happy in one part of the world versus another, or maybe HR is happier than sales. But again, getting to that last question seems to be missing in a lot of cases, that what now? What have you seen is required in the organization to be able to answer that question? What now? What's the change I need to make to you know, bring about good experience? That certainly happens where people have, have put in tools, put in process, put in some form of experience, sentiment surveys, combined with some other tooling, and come back with a lot of data. But if you don't do anything with it, it just becomes another data repository. It just becomes another overblown reporting mechanism. Oh, that's those people over there that do something to do with customer experience. If you really want to drive experience management, you have to have people behind that experience management solution the sentiment surveys, the digital experience tools, the relevant SLAs and KPIs, all those good things that may have an impact to experience that are looking at the context of why people have said what they might have said in a sentiment survey, looking at whether we've uh, done what we said we're going to do with our SLAs and KPIs and looking at the, the digital experience scores and seeing where possibilities might be. That is the what now question, as you quite rightly said. You have to have senior people in the organization who are inquisitive, who can work across matrix structures, who can you know, shine a light into other areas, but also work with other people to say, look, I think we've identified and uncovered a problem and it's involved in these two departments. How can we work together to get that solved? Because we need the right business outcome. The whole group needs to be on board with those outcomes. And then the people in the experience management office can then 
understand this is the data we've got. I've analyzed it. I found some patterns. Let me go and bring other departments in because this is where I think the problem might reside. And often it's corralling and, and bringing that ecosystem of people together to get it resolved. But you need a level of A, inquisitiveness. B, you need to be able to be open and work across departments. And I think there's a level of seniority in there. And that's not because you need to force people to get things done, but the company needs to show that the experience management office is at a senior level for it to be taken seriously. If the experience management office is too low down an organization, it will just become a data repository, another reporting lake. You need to raise the XMO up and out off from the operations for sure. Often it's completely separate from the service management office. I think it's a separate department within IT that is focused on, we are measuring and managing experience. And to achieve the outcomes that IT have said they're going to drive, you need to have someone in the XMO that's senior, that can corral other departments and say, we have identified some issues and we need to work together with you to solve those issues, to drive the outcomes that we've said we would in our IT objectives. Well, I think that's a great way, Neil, to uh, conclude this episode here. I really, really appreciate you sharing your multiple years of experience and the 100 plus clients you've worked with, collecting that experience and sharing it with us and looking at some bad practices that uh, we can all avoid in rolling out experience management. Thank you again, Neil. No, thank you, Weston. Thanks for inviting me. That was that was great fun. I'd happily do another one anytime. <laughs> well, just to recap for our listeners, if they were taking notes, we've covered with Neil here four key areas of bad practices that it's very important to avoid for you to be successful in an experience management program. We talked about KPIs that are tied to experience. We talked about tooling, not just selecting the right tool, but your expectations for what the tool can and can't do and your responsibility of using that tool correctly. We talked about the bad use of surveys or the correct use of surveys, proper use of questioning, the art and science of actually finding out what the sentiment is of your users. And then lastly, the organizational changes you're going to need to make and having the right levels of the company involved for a successful experience management program. Again, thank you, Neil, for your time today. Thank you. We've been listening to Neil Keating, the Chief Experience Officer and co-founder of Brighthorse, a company that has helped over 100 enterprises around the world develop their own experience management program. I'll be providing a link to Neil's website for you to find more information, as well as links to our own experience management program here at Unisys. This is the Digital Workplace Deep Dive. Thanks for listening. 